In Kinabila, uh, as you know, today we have around 30,000 editions which survive in 450,000 copies in about 4,000 public library, mostly in Europe and the US. Each of these copies preserve in itself evidence of its own history, its own 500 years of history in the form of historical binding or decorations or manuscript annotations or in documentary material like registers and uh, late medieval library catalogues. Um, let's go back to the some written part. The book trade differs from other trades operating in the medieval and early modern periods in that the goods traded survive in considerable numbers. Not only do they survive, but many of them uh, bear stratified evidence of their history in the form of the just mentioned um, marks of use. These books are material evidence of the expansion of the trade, signaling the response of different publics to the introduction of printing, documenting book buying as well as reading habits. Yet, the book trade barely makes an appearance among publications devoted to the Renaissance trade in goods and its impact on the social economic development of Europe. Material evidence has not been used until now as a systematic <coughs> historical tool to advance our knowledge of the trade network and social history of the 15th century. Library collections tend to be perceived as static entities. We have a library, full of books, been there for a little while. Yet the books they contain, especially those from historical collection, have moved around extensively in their centuries-old existence. An example, here we have an Aristotle printed in Venice in the 15th century, which was of course, obviously, immediately moved to Germany, where a South German-style binding um, decoration was added to it. And then, of course, the inscription of ownership, the premonstratensions of Weissenau. The book was still there in the um, 16th, 17th century, as we can see from the still unidentified coat of arms up there, German in style, not yet identified. But then the book moved to England, where it was purchased by Samuel Butler, and after Butler, it was purchased by the Bodleian um, at his sale. This is evidence of international distribution. Another example, evidence of national trade 
another Venetian uh, humanist uh, work, Pomponius Laetus, uh, clearly shipped directly to Bologna, where it was purchased by a German student studying at the University of Bologna, uh, Christopher Scherl. And we have this very nice information on the cost of the book, which with the bounding cost 35 Bolognini, together with other uh, text. Now, how to capture this evidence of the movement of these and thousands of other books and uh, understand that, transform it into chronological and spatial coordinates that we can use for our historical research. That is the challenge that, after working here at the Bodleian, I pose myself to capture the movement of the books. That is one of the components of the um, 15th century book trade project, which, as uh, Wilma mentioned, uh, started last year. Um, and um, this project articulates in, in it wants to explore um, the 15th century book trade in four main components. Evidence of distribution, the trade routes, the use and reception of books, the transmission and dissemination of the text these books contain, contemporary sales and prices, and the circulation and reuse of illustrations. Together with this, so which sources we are using? We are using the books themselves, because as said, the books contain all the evidence we need to use that for tracking their movement. Together with that, we are also using a pretty spectacular survival document, an account book of a Venetian bookseller. And I will tell you more about uh, that. Um, to address the challenge of capturing the movement of books, I created five years ago a apposite database called Material Evidence in Incunabula. What we do in this database, for every mark of evidence, a former owner, a binding, a manuscript annotation, we tag it chronologically and geographically. That allows us to then understand how they moved around. So, in that database, this is what the record um, of the Pomponius Latos um, you own by Scherl looks like. First, it shows you that the book was used in Bologna, in Italy in the 15th century, by Christoph Scherl. We know it because there is an inscription. We transcribe that. Next, the book was in Frankfurt in Germany in the 18th century. It was uh, then owned by uh, George uh, Kloss. We know it because there is an ex libris. And then it was sold further. The book moves to Oxford in the 19th century, where it was purchased at the Bodleian. 
this is the way we follow the book. When I'm asked to define, you know, oh, sorry, I'll show you something. What we also do here for all former owners, we define them firm, um, further in terms of their gender, their status, lay, religious, aristocracy, and their profession. What this allows us to do is to search the database for all books owned by students or used by priests or, most importantly, um, medical books uh, printed in Venice and used in Germany in the 15th century or printed in Milan and used uh, in France in the 17th century. These are questions that have never been addressed before. Not just because we don't have the information, but because we didn't have appropriate tools that allow us to work with this information in a possible, understandable way. So, the role as well. When I'm asked to define, um, in a nutshell, what distinguishes the printed book from its manuscript predecessor, uh, my answer is fairly um, simple and direct. First, is the invention of typography. Second, is the collaboration that was needed for its production and then the distribution. And third is the trade. The fact that for this new enterprise to succeed, huge quantities of books had to find a market. That realization was successfully acted upon in Venice. And that is why by 1500, Venice produced uh, over 3,000 editions, quickly becoming Western Europe's uh, leading printing center and the biggest supplier of books. A vast number of copies of Venetian editions were exported throughout the European continents and then beyond, a new and important trade of huge significance for the cultural history of Europe in which Venice played a leading role. But the economic dimension of the new trade would not be complete without the, comp the complementary component of costs and prices. For this, we have, again, two types of sources. The books themselves, because sometimes their prices are recorded by the former owners, what they are, the currencies, when and where a book was purchased. Um, we have very, very few documents of uh, legal nature, um, generally are business dealings, business dealings gone bad, but those are very few. And I wonder whether from that we have to take that most of the time things were working. Um, but finally, we have an extraordinary document. It is um, an accountancy document. It is the ledger of a Venetian bookseller called Francesco de Magis for just under four years, between 1484 and 1488. So 
this is just 15 years after printing was introduced in Venice. This is what it looks like. This is how we know it belonged to Francesco de Magis because on the cover of the ledger there is some, a printer's mark which has been identified with MF um, Magis, Francesco, in these uh, editions which he published more than printed himself. The ledger begins, as I said, in 1484, ends in 1488 and it contains also just for one year the stock in trade all the books that he was getting in as well as selling. The layout of this ledger is quite um, um, well it's very structured and it includes um, the titles for example where the arrow is it says Missaletti de Messer Nicolao de San Domenico number one and what it means that those are entries and we have 11 over 11,000 of these entries but as you can see these um, the copies are numbered so the first one of another missile 26 copies are sold all in one go or one on two and four and sometimes these books are bought all together in a block purchase like this is the case so of course you have many entries, many, many copies, one sale with one individual price. That's why we always have to keep the distinction. Over 25,000 books are sold in under four years, um, a number of titles, and this is the number of sales. As you can imagine, this document is um, incredible because uh, includes just about every title that you can imagine was printed in the 15th century. Um, it was known by scholarship from at least as for a century, but as you probably can tell, he had some challenges. Mostly, it's huge size. It's, um, it's um, this kind of ledger of 160 pages, all written in a abbreviated cursive hand of the 15th century. Third uh, challenge is that the bibliography that is used to indicate titles in this document is not the one we use today in our electronic catalogues. This is a 15th century bibliography, so it takes exposure to handling 15th century books and their content to understand what um, some of these books are. I'm working on this document together with Professor Neil Harris of the University of Udine and we expect by the end of the project in 2019 to have done a full uh, edition, identification and so on. So this is again what you have there, um, a very massive amount of information and basically this is an amazing um, photography of what was going on in a bookshop in the largest printing and distribution place in Europe just 15 years under printing and is going to tell us the value 
of books at the time, and is what now we're going to look into. This is the way it is organized. It's all about money. It is organized in the uh, duodecimal system you're probably familiar still with, where you have um, 12 denarii forming one soldo. Denarii don't appear here because they are too small, but you have the soldi, where 20 soldi makes one lira, and uh, six lira and four soldi makes one D ducat, which was a golden super currency of the time. Now, we might have 25,000 prices of books, but what does that mean to us? We need to understand what it meant to the people at the time. And to do that, the most important thing to do is to gather as much evidence on the cost of living in Venice at the same time to understand the value of these British books compared to wages or food or all sorts of this, this kind of thing. And of course, compared to the manuscripts that still were circulating in large quantities, books written by hand, which only eventually will be partly replaced by these printed books. So um, just to give you an example, the salaries of uh, in the building trade in Venice between 1460 and 1505, a master of construction would get a daily wage of between 20 and 36 soldi. Now, this might not tell you a lot. You will understand progressively what it meant. An ordinary laborer had a daily wage of between 12 and 17 soldi. Food, 1460. Two chickens, nine soldi. One fat goose, 12. An excellent eel, three. Pound of cherries, one soldo. More food. Price ceiling for beef, two soldi to the pound. Oil, four soldi. A haircut, normally four soldi. So you get an understanding that soldi is fairly ordinary. Now, price of manuscripts. This evidence comes from um, um, accounts of a very famous Florentine manuscript um, uh, writer and basically stationer, but a very special one, um, Vespasiano da Bisticci. He produced grand manuscripts for the royals of Europe. So, of course, the cost of these manuscripts are because they are probably also grandly um, illuminated. That said, I've translated the cost of uh, ducats in soldi, so we can better understand the quantity. And then in red, I've added the cost of a printed um, copy of um, the, as they appear in the Demadi ledger. And you can see just immediately the massive drop. So a book of hour, bellissimo, I mean, I'm sure it would be wonderful like many were produced, 11 ducats is over a thousand soldi. Cicero de Ofiquis, now that would not have been a massive manuscript, a quite slender one, five ducats, a printed, um, the average for a printed de Ofiquis is 80 soldi. Um, 
and those are many others. You see the enormous difference. Ptolemy, I mark that because, of course, I will be discussing the Ptolemy we have in the exhibition in Marks of Genius with beautiful pictures, probably illuminated, 50 ducats, 6,200 soldi. In the Mahdi's, and it, the edition, the edition that we have in the room, a copy of that, called Ptolemeo Configure, cost 470 soldi. Now, as I said, these are special manuscripts. Um, this, the Vespasiano da Bisticci also produced ordinary manuscripts for the Badia of Fiesole, um, which um, are known to be clearly like not illuminated. And the average price for a more ordinary manuscript, again, is almost two ducats. So we are clearly high in range still. Now, let me go back. As you know, the first surviving experiments of Johann Gutenberg dates to 1450. During the subsequent 10 years, to 1460, printing continues to be practiced only in Mainz, where 48 editions survive today. By 1465, presses are established in other German towns. Bamberg is one, for example, and in Italy. We know three editions dated to 1465, printed in the Benedictine Monastery of Subiaco, near Rome. That was the first place where, um, that we know of pr uh, it, um, printing was introduced in Italy. And in Rome itself, uh, 12 editions are printed between 1467 and 69. Then, in 69, printing is introduced in Venice. Until printing arrives to Venice, the distribution of books is done following the known channels of the manuscript book. So through acquaintances or known networks, the scholars, the religious networks. Historians of the book keep talking about the 1473 as a year of crisis, of overproduction. There is a famous editor, uh, Debussy, who complains to the Pope, say, I've made all these fantastic editions for the, you know, the good of the world and the church, and our warehouses are full. And uh, I need help. I need economic help. So um, this kind of overproduction that went on, particularly in Rome, um, also of classical text has been indicated as, yes, they produce too much. But really, they produce too much the first five years. I believe what's happening here is that there is a problem of distribution. They needed to move to a new model of distributing the books, not anymore like the manuscripts, but they needed to hit the international distribution. And that is what happened in Venice. Um, and I'll tell you more about. Just to say that the price 
Now, let's go again, the price of printed books in the first 10 years, it is kept at the same level of the manuscripts. And uh, this is an example. Um, this uh, is a very famous book, the Razionale o Guglielmo Durando, uh, printed in Mainz, so one of the early production of 1459 by Fust and Schoffer. In uh, 1461, the Benedictine of San Giorgio Maggiore in Venice, who had a fantastic collection of incunabula, um, clearly bought it and paid 18 ducats. That is a lot of money for a book that clearly was not decorated. So this is just one evidence of how still in the first years they produce something new which copies the manuscript and uh, but they try to keep that kind of prices and that kind of distribution network. Just to show you the difference, that edition is in the Zornale of the bookseller from Venice in 84, and the cost is 50 soldi. Massive difference. So in the, so we said in the 60s, still the cost is like the manuscripts, very high. In the 70s, they drop a bit, but it's still quite high, still some ducats. The price drops for printed books in the 80s, in conjunction with the setting up of the international network for the trade. Sorry. <coughs> How does that happen? The two most important figures of the first decade um, in uh, printers in Venice are the German Vindelinus de Spira and the French Nicolas Jensen. He is the printer of the fabulous Pliny in Marks of Genius, which we'll be discussing more about. Both printers were member of a confraternity in Venice, or Scuola. Up there in Canareggio, so out of the center, there is the Scuola Piccola of San Girolamo. This is it. That is St. Hieronymus, and the Scuola I was attached to it. A confraternity, as you know, is an association of lay and religious people uh, for a mutual a support and devotion. It is not a guilt. It's not um, for members of the same trade. People from all sorts are members of the confraternita. That area you might recognize is just adjacent to what the area that became known as the ghetto. That is San Girolamo still there today. Um, the choice of these two printers and other printers and other people involved with printing in the first decade in Venice is not random. Who else was a member of this confraternity? Traders, German and uh, low countries, traders. And it is there that I think they cemented 
the beginning of the international trade. Printers, booksellers and foreign traders socially supporting each other in a Venetian confraternity the very first decade since the introduction of printing in the city is no small evidence of what made Venetian book trade the leading in Europe in the years ahead. This is how the international trade in printed books begins. Just to complete the picture, in the 80s in Venice, there is another confraternity where all the printers then congregate, and these are mostly Italian printers of the 80s, and is the Scuola Grande of San Rocco. They were all there. And uh, this is San Rocco, adjacent to the Frari in Venice. This is the grand, beautiful Scuola that uh, was then um, built over and expanded at the beginning of the 16th century. I've searched the um, matriculation books of all the scuole of Venice. Printers were not here and there and everywhere. They were just in these two scuole. First San Girolamo, then San Rocco. And in San Rocco, they were not just members, they, they were running the confraternity. So then uh, we might think, how come by already the 1480s, printers who were part of ordinary members of the scuole then are becoming so important that they get leading positions. And now we come to the Pliny. This uh, Jensen Pliny uh, could not be more representative of this new entrepreneurial world of printed book production and distribution. We are lucky that we know quite a lot about its production because it was commissioned by a member of the Strozzi family of Florence, merchants and bankers of Florence, and uh, documents relating to the production of the book and its distribution still survive today in the archives in Florence, in the Carte Strozziane. So, what we know is that, uh, as we said, um, the, the main person, the, the idea behind is Filippo Strozzi, who um, begins his career uh, in Naples, um, working for his uh, cousin, uh, who had a branch uh, on operation in, in Naples, and the cousin um, was Philipp, um, sorry, Filippo Strozzi, is the Strozzi in Naples. What we are talking about is Girolamo Strozzi, who was younger and starts uh, spending his time a little bit in Naples, as well as dealing with his brother, Marco Strozzi, who uh, already in the 70s, was based uh, in London. And so what we know is that uh, Girolamo was already commissioning manuscripts to Italian scribes of the Italian classics, Dante and Petrarch, and then shipping them to Southampton and London because Marco clearly had customers for selling them. Quite interesting. Um, 
1475, Girolamo moves to Venice for one year. And there, first he deals in luxury goods, um, Venetian satin, Murano glasses, apparently a special cabbage that came all the way from Candia, from Crete. And then he was sending them back to Florence and to Naples. Now, we don't know exactly how it came about, whether it was really his idea or the idea of a third man called another important member of a Florentine family called Giovanni Battista Ridolfi, but that they decided to prepare this edition of Pliny translating into Italian. Ridolfi was the person who put them in contact with the printer, Nicholas Jensen. Contracts were prepared and we know that Ridolfi and Girolamo shares all the cost and all the, of course, income. Cost was substantial, 730 ducats they spent on paper. We know that paper it was the largest part of the investment. And uh, we also know that 1,025 copies of uh, these editions were prepared and that uh, a set price of seven ducats, which still bit a lot, we are 1470s, was decided for its sale. A quick calculation, 1,025 times seven makes 7,175 ducats uh, of profit from which, of course, you have to take away the 700 of the paper and probably 400, based on calculation of other payments that we know about, paid to the printer. Still, that makes a profit of almost um, 6,000 ducats, which is pretty impressive. In the documents, there is information about the, how the book was distributed. In a way, still a bit of the old-fashioned way, um, through Girolamo Strozzi's network. Uh, sent to booksellers in uh, Florence, in Siena, in Rome, in Pisa, in Naples. And, um, but from Venice, instead, Rizolf, uh, Ridolfi would send it to the Medici branch in Bruges and then to Marco Strozzi in London. This copy, however, sorry, served also a very special purpose. It was probably given uh, to Filippo Strozzi, the important member of the family active in Naples. This is his, uh, as you can see, his bust now at the Louvre. Filippo Strozzi has the copy beautifully decorated by Florentine artists, but with indications of his important um, relationship with the Neapolitan royal family, which clearly allowed him to become and amass the wealth that he did, making him only second in wealth among the Florentines to the Medici. So what you can see here is that at the top there are the King of Naples arm, uh, but you have the Strozzi emblems, the lamb, and, and again Strozzi arms, the three crescents here at the bottom. Um, again, in another page of the introduction, you have uh, the portrait of Ferdinand, King of Naples, and of Filippo Strozzi there. 
So it is really a representation of um, and a celebration of his success and um, an interest in art, though we know he was an art benefactor. More evidence, you know, up there is also the Aragon arms. This is the great quality uh, decorations, you know, just uh, various examples of it. But then you wonder, such a wonderful books, did he stay in the Strozzi family? No. Um, something, it's the Strozzi collection is very interesting. Um, the manuscript collection of the family was in the 18th century purchased by uh, the um, Peter Leopold, um, Grand Duke of Tuscany at the time. But um, the printed books, they've gone completely dispersed. This is the subsequent owner in the 16th century, another well-known Florentine, Giulio de Nobili. We know about him not from any um, coat of arms of anything, but there are his arms in the binding, I'm afraid in, in the clasps, not really visible uh, um, here. This just to show that at a certain point, the Strozzi collection must also have started stamping their books, again with the three crescents. And uh, we have come across books clearly coming from the Strozzi collection in Cambridge, in Harvard, at Columbia University. The more we do good cataloging, the more they are coming out. But what happened exactly when this collection was dispersed would be very interesting to find out also and it must have been very substantial. This to show you instead the cost of exactly this edition sold uh, by Francesco de Madis in 1487, 10 years later. Um, one copy described as Plinio Volgar Grande Ligato, so bound, sells for 320 soldi, or two ducats. Now, cost of bound books is generally double that unbound, so that means that by 1487, this edition of um, Pliny by Jensen sells for 160 um, soldi, or just over one ducat. So it's a reduction of five or six ducats from the price of 10 years before. And um, it is massive. So it is still at the probably high end of um, uh, the price that uh, I've been extrapolating from um, the ledger. This is just a breakdown to show that out of the 25,000 priced books, the absolute great majority, whatever they are, which of course that needs, has got an implication, cost between 20 and 40 soldi. Very, very approachable. And uh, so the cost of the Pliny, it is at the high end, um, but the Pliny is 400 pages and is massive. This is instead the Ptolemy also in uh, the exhibition. And it is a copy printed in Ulm in 86. 
and uh, it's got also an interesting story connected with Venice. The edition, um, this copy, was given to uh, Francesco Cappello, Venetian ambassador to the royals of Spain in the 1490s. In fact, I cannot show you, but his coat of arms, which looks like this, is a hat, a Venetian hat, but also imposed, overimposed with the arms of the royals, is on the front page town of the copy here in Bodley, with also these inscriptions that says, um, these are the, the signs of the, of the royals, um, given to the orators in Burgos in 1495. He was there, of course, on a diplomatic mission um, on behalf of Venice to deal with the various wars pro-France, against France, etc., etc. When Francesco, of course, he brought back this book uh, to Venice with him, and um, we have information about his life um, from a famous diarist, Marin Sanudo of Venice, where he says that it took six months for him from Spain to come back to Venice. And what else did he bring back as gift of the royals of Spain? Um, colorful, oh dear, I forgot the word, papagalli, birds, the birds, the parrots, <laughs> colorful parrots, and um, an African prince from the Canary Islands, who still could not um, be understood in the language. And what is amazing is that the Venetian Senate decided to educate the prince, and it was sent to the University of Padua um, to be raised. Um, Capello continues his very successful aristocratic life. The book, um, no, the book um, stayed in Venice for another while until probably the um, 18th century when uh, entered the antiquarian market. So both books, the Pliny and the Ptolemy, were purchased by Francis Dowes, probably at the beginning of, very beginning of the 19th century. The reasons why they got into the antiquarian market and they left probably substantial collection in Italy is a very interesting one to investigate. And it's one of the things we, we tend to, you know, to do. This just to show you the cost of uh, a Ptolemy with figure, probably not the Ulm one, but a later Venetian editions in the, um, uh, the Madis which says for 470 soldi. So again, probably because it was large and with illustrations, it is way above the average of an ordinary printed book. Just, just to show you that there is another interesting member of the Cappello family that is listed in the account book of Francesco de Madi, and it is Alvise Cappello, a relative, who in uh, June 1484, purchased from uh, the bookseller as many as um, 16 books, all in the vernacular. So these are um, the Gospels in the vernacular, uh, 50 novelle, the um, uh, Petrarch, um, the Fiammetta of Boccaccio. So a long list of uh, 
um, popular kind of, but certainly in the vernacular books, um, that are indicated here in summa with the following. I sold to Messer Alvise Capello, and up there say in summa with the previous, I gave to Capello for a total of 268 soldi, so they cost 17 soldi each. So an interesting um, and very affordable kind of comparison. Just to close, monographic studies on the Venetian trade in uh, salt, raisins, grain, olive oil, sausages, wool, silk, second-hand clothes, wood, glass, hosiery, ceramics, arms, maiolica, paintings, marbles, antiques, and slaves have been published in the last 50 years. However, there has been no such study on the Venetian book trade. The reason? Most evidence still needs to be captured, and what we have is scattered in hundreds of paper or electronic publication. What over 20 years spent um, hands-on incunabula in the Bodinal Library and in other libraries taught me is that the evidence is plentiful, but crucially, it needs to be not only carefully gathered, and I refer here to good conventional catalogue, like what we did also here in Bodley, paper or electronic, but intelligently retrieved. And this is what the 15th century book trade project is doing now, integrating high quality provenance data from Europe and the US to rewrite an evidence-based, and underline that, evidence-based history of the 15th century book trade, uh, which will vindicate the role of books in the shaping of the modern Western world. Thank you. <laughs>